0: Hello, I'm Nicole Aberdee, and I write about books for Good Weekend. Welcome to the Books, Books, Books podcast, in which I interview the best writers from Australia and overseas about their latest books. Thank you for joining me. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the country where I live and work, and from where I'm joining this conversation, the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past and present, to the elders of all communities and cultures across Australia, and to leaders of the future. You can listen to this podcast, all of the episodes, at nicoleabody.com.au or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Today it is with the greatest of pleasure that I welcome Dame Hilary Mantel, twice winner of the Man Booker Prize, to Books, Books, Books. Today we won't be discussing the Cromwell Trilogy. Instead, we'll be discussing Mantlepieces, a collection of 20 reviews, essays and pieces of memoir that Dame Hillary has written over three decades for the London Review of Books. The book is published here in Australia by HarperCollins. Here are some of the many topics covered in these essays. Kate Middleton, the Duchess of Cambridge and Madonna, Marie Antoinette, Anne Boleyn and Robespierre, none of those will be a surprise, and The Trial of Britain's Last Witch in 1944. Dame Hilary's first book, Every Day is Mother's Day, was published in 1985. Since then, she has published 14 more books, including a memoir, Giving Up the Ghost, in 2013. She is, of course, best known for her Cromwell trilogy, Wolf Hall, Bring Up the Bodies, and The Mirror and the Light, which was published earlier this year. The first two of those have sold more than 5 million copies, have been adapted as a pair of stage plays that debuted at the Royal Shakespeare Company in 2013, and were also developed as a 2015 BBC miniseries. With those two books, Dame Hilary became the first woman to win the Man Booker Prize twice, in 2009 for Wolf Hall, and again in 2012 for Bring Up the Bodies. In 2015, she was made Dame Commander, Order of the British Empire, for her services to literature, and the chairman of the Booker Judges, Sir Peter Stockhard, has called her the greatest modern English prose writer working today. Dame Hilary, welcome to Books, Books, Books.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: I'd like to start by asking you a little bit about how you became a reviewer for the London Review of Books. I know that you started reviewing for the London Review in 1987, just after you returned with your husband from nine years overseas in Botswana and then in Saudi Arabia. When you came back you started doing some book reviews for a couple of publications and you also became the film critic for the spectator at what stage of your writing career was this and why did you start why did you decide to start reviewing
1: it was very early in my writing career i published one book everyday's mothers day and Actually, my second book, Vacant Possession, was published just as I came back to England. But you know how it is, or how it was in those days. For my first book, I earned £2,000. For my second, £4,000. Well, that was a good rate of advance, but it wasn't a living. So I was faced with... What do I do now? Can I possibly make a living as a writer? I certainly can't make one from fiction. And I was very pleased when my first book came out to have an enormous and and very good review from Oberon Moore, that pillar of the establishment, who was the last person I expected to like my work. But I think you know he had a mordant sense of humour, which I guess was a family tray and I think the sardonic nature of of my first couple of books appealed to him. He had reviewed them both well, and so you must understand I had no connections. Mm. I didn't know anyone who was a writer or anyone who was in publishing except for my own publisher and this was partly a product of my background which was not bookish and also the fact that I had been out of the country for such a long time. So I wrote to Oberon War to thank him. I didn't know the etiquette of this, but he'd given me two amazingly good reviews and lots of space. And so then he said, would you like to review something for the Literary Review? Which was the small paper that he ran at that time. Fairly high-quality reviewing, a a fairly prominent paper, though not a huge circulation. So I jumped at this, and I really pity the first person I reviewed. (laughs) I'm afraid I realised right at the beginning that a bad review can be very funny. A good review very seldom is. it wasn't, it wasn't a great book, but it probably didn't deserve being kicked around in the way I did. Um, it was a harmless little novel, but it it garnered attention. And so he, Oberon War, was keen to give me more work. And I worked for a few months for the literary review, and then I found I had work coming in. But the spectator was something else again. Um, I entered a travel writing competition. It was the Shiva Naipaul Memorial Prize. And it was an essay prize. It was the first year of its foundation. Shiva Naipaul was a brother of V.S. Naipaul, the younger brother who'd died young rather tragically, he was a very talented writer. And he was a writer who meant something very special to me because I had read his book of African Journeys when I was living in Southern Africa. And it was one of the few times that I recognized the continent I was living in. So I thought, not only do I, as it were, know this man, I know that we resonate, we have the same way of looking at the world, and I can win this prize. So I entered the the competition, I did win it. The spectator invited me to lunch, and their film critic, who was Peter Ackroyd, had just left. And they asked me if I would fill in the film column for two weeks. And I was so scared that I said yes because I said yes to everything in those days. And again, you know, it was a hit and I stayed. And then as soon as you have a weekly column somewhere, Mm -hmm. then you you get lots of um, attention and I, I got offered probably more work than I could or should have handled and then I found myself in that difficulty which beset me for my whole career how much time do you give to your fiction which is a long-term thing and it, it doesn't pay off and how much time should you give to literary journalism which gives you a couple of checks each month to Keep things ticking over, so that's a question I never really resolved. But that was how the whole thing got going.
0: You said something lovely, and I, and one of the really beautiful things about this book, and I, I want to come to talk to you about it, is that between each essay, almost between each essay, there's interlaid the correspondence between you and the editor of the LRB. First of all, Carl Miller, and then of course Mary Kay Wilmot. So we'll come to talk about that in a moment, but. In this initial letter that you write to Carl Miller in 1987, you say that you, you'd you like to do the reviewing, but you've got some reservations. You say, I have no critical training whatsoever, so I am forced to be more brisk and breezy than scholarly. And you say also in the introduction to this collection of essays that you had qualms about whether you'd be able to rise to the requisite standard, for the LRB. How did you get past that? How did you assure yourself that you did have the ability, in fact, to write reviews and to write for the London Review of Books. And I guess my other question was, did you ever feel that that lack of critical training did hold
1: you back? Well, Mary Kay Wilmer certainly seemed to regard it as a positive because I remember saying to her at one point that I made a new friend who was teaching me some critical theory And she said, oh, don't, (laughs) Um, because I think what she wanted was for me to think things out for myself and present a point of view that was inquiring and searching, but not academic. Mm -hmm. Because after all, she got all the wealth of the world's universities to draw on if she wanted someone tutored in theory or she wanted an academic expert. I was standing in, if you like, for a very diligent ordinary reader Mm. who would think about the background to a book and maybe read some of the author's other work Which actually was the ordinary reader might not do, but is necessary for for those type of reviews. I'm not sure I did ever get over my feeling of what am I doing here? Imposter syndrome, you know, do any of us ever get over it? But it means that with each piece you do, you think. Now I must earn my place. Just as with each novel you write, no one has a right to be published or to stay published. You have to keep staking your claim. That's my feeling.
0: For those listeners who are not familiar with it, could you tell us a little bit about the London Review of Books and why you enjoy writing for it so much? You've been writing for it now for over three decades.
1: The London Review is a paper that... It's very eclectic in its approach. It doesn't review narrowly academic books. It reviews a good mixture of fiction or non-fiction. I would say the only criteria is that a book needs to have substance. And sometimes you will be reviewing more than one book. Um, They will group together three or four titles The paper is not fixated on being current. So, if a book that's germane to your piece came out the previous year, you may find that's pulled into your batch. And it publishes substantial pieces 3,000 words, 4,000 words. One of the pleasures for the reviewer is that you don't have a particular space constraint. You're not Mm -hmm. encouraged to inflate what you have to say, but you can discuss it at proper length. And also the, the paper will give you time. I was always really worried about this because I always set myself out to meet copy dates and with newspapers that's essential and I thought going back to your question about how have you the right to do this I always thought well at least you can be reliable at least you can be thorough you can deliver your copy on the nail and it to the right word length but when I work for the London Review I had to forget some of that and I remember asking Mary Kay for one piece how many words would you like and she said what it takes and I set myself as I say not not to inflate but it would mean you could go round the corner on a topic you could throw in some other book that mm. happened to have come your way and, and look at and explore alternative readings, I suppose. Mm. So the paper is um, increasingly powerful, I would say, mm. widely circulated, Not not a quick read, mm. not ever but not afraid of controversy.
0: A very lovely feature of the collection is that it includes actual copies of the correspondence between you and Mary Kay Wilmers, the longtime editor over all those three decades. And you can trace the history, of course, through the means of communication. So I think we start with postcards, then we have faxes, then we have emails. I wanted to ask you if you could talk a little bit about the relationship between the two of you. It seemed to me that it started in the way that one would expect as a professional relationship with her as the editor of the journal and you as a contributor. But reading that correspondence, tracking it through, it becomes very clear that the relationship became much more akin to a personal friendship.
1: I have enormous respect for Mary Kay. I wouldn't say that I know her well. Uh, I've never been a person who was part of Literary London. And our meetings over the years have been very few and far between. She's a rather reserved person, and so am I. Um, I think she's not easy to know. But what she became in my head was an enabling principle. She was someone who gave me permission to really get stuck into a topic, to Mm. explore it, who gave me the time and space, as I've said. And gradually it evolved from there because I'd start to think outside the box of reviewing. And I think, now I have an idea for a piece, perhaps a piece of memoir, perhaps a short story. No one's going to want this, but I bet Mary Kay would be interested. And so what she did was she gave me the push. She gave me an impetus to extend my range. Because, of course, if you're thinking of a market, it does does narrow the range of what you're going to try out. And particularly for short fiction, I think... The market can be very difficult. When I say short fiction, I tend not to write to the three thousand word mark, but more like five, six, seven thousand words. Very hard to place. Now, what I found with the LRB was you had that freedom. Mm-hmm. If they liked the story, they would make space. Mm-hmm. If you approached them and said. I'm really interested in this book. You might not have to wait for the commission. You could propose something, or you just said, I'm interested in this topic. And I had a feeling sometimes that Mary Kay knew me a lot better than I knew myself, which is what the best editors do. I, I experienced this often. I'd like
0: to ask you a little bit, first of all, about the reviews, Hilary. So the the book's sort of broken into reviews, a couple of diary pieces, and one piece that started as a speech, which I'm going to save till the end. Let's start with the reviews. It's interesting to see from the selection here, and and I gather generally, that you reviewed books about subject matter that was unfamiliar to you. Um, I'm thinking now perhaps of Madonna, for example, as well as books about an area in which you had enormous expertise, books about the French Revolution and the Tudors. And I wondered which of those was the more challenging and which did you enjoy the more? That's a
1: really good question. I I would say they're different but equal Mm. in my mind. I did like the, the opportunity to get stuck into an unfamiliar topic as... A sideways move but hopefully not too much of a diversion. In the ideal world the work you've done pays off in some way for your mainstream work because it changes your thinking and again that seemed to be something that the review was was very good at selecting something that would do that for you. I'm not sure that Madonna changed my life Um, but you know, writing the pieces about things like the, the G- James Bulger case, the, mm. the little boy who was stolen. Mm. And murdered. I mean, again, I was picking up on the fact that I'd done... Um,
0: mm. Some work experience.
1: Kind of service. Yeah. I, I had some experience in social work and so on. And those are things I had not written about. Uh, I hadn't addressed them in fiction. So what I was finding was a creative way of reviewing. Mm. So I could use my own experience and channel it into the review piece. That was a pleasure to do. Mm. I think with the the pieces, particularly on the Tudors, say on Margaret Pole or on Charles Brandon, the Duke Mm. of Suffolk, uh, it's a chance to deepen your knowledge of something that might form a very small part of the trilogy, but it was still absolutely fascinating to me because, you know, you come to a stage where nothing is too much, nothing, no amount of digging around in the record is too much for you. You, whatever I do, whatever my topic is at the time, I'm I'm really heart and soul in it. So I find the closer you look at something, the more interesting it becomes, and the more you can commit to it. Mm. So I I think both types of pieces appealed in their different ways. With With the pieces where, as you say, I'm an outsider to the topic, I didn't know much. There was a feeling of, I don't know where this might take me, but let's just see. You said something lovely in the introduction, I think, talking about
0: um, reviewing a book whose subject matter you were not as familiar with. And I'm, I'm thinking, for example, of the piece about the James Bulger case. And you, you said in the introduction that often by the time you'd done the work and the research and you'd written the review, you you almost felt like you knew less at the end than you had When you started, could you explain that a little bit to us?
1: All these pieces have the potential to take you somewhere quite profound, and that that would be the one that I would probably pick out as having the most potential in Mm. that direction. Mm. And I suppose what it is with all these pieces, you start off thinking you know what you think, then as you get into the topic, then the complexity of it flowers out from the centre. And at the end, not only do you know it's more complicated than you thought, but you are questioning everything you brought to it at the beginning. I think that's an ideal situation. Obviously, some topics go go much deeper than others. I would think, you know, Murder Case goes um, much deeper than a review on John Osborne and the playwright and and so on. So I don't want to overstate the profundity of this subject matter. Sometimes you were just... um, how can I put it? You were setting yourself to shake up people's preconceptions or to be irreverent about a topic that your elders were reverent about because I was a young woman when I started um doing these these pieces i was I was in my my thirties. Sometimes it tied into your work and your thinking at a deeper level. And there would be a curious twinning process taking Mm. place because writing at the same time for the New York Review of Books, um, again, I wrote on the topic of distressed children and Mm. child murder through the Mary Bell case in Mm. the New York Review of Books. So Mm. those two pieces balanced out.
0: Are there any pieces, Hilary, that you wrote that when you went into writing the piece you didn't know much about that subject matter at all and at the end you had such an interest in it that it did inspire you to write fiction about it?
1: I I wrote a piece called, uh, they called it Eunice's Story, A Mohawk Captive, which was um, Canadian history and we're going back to the 17th century. And this is um it's one of these cases where the Indians take a child captive. The child becomes a sort of burning cause within her home community and must get Eunice back. As an once Eunice is grown up, her home community managed to make contact with her. And to their astonishment, Eunice doesn't want to come back. Her Mm. home is now among the Indians. And this is a moment of history I I, I didn't know anything about. The author of the book, John Demos is a rather wonderful writer. He's one of these historians who, whilst authoritative, is not afraid to use his imagination and say he's using it. So... I read a number of of his other books and um and then, then approached the story of Eunice and, um, and they, all, they all gave me a great deal of pleasure. And and then in 2017 I actually met him. Uh, and and he of course he remembered my review and, and we had a really good talk about it. And his, what I realised was that he's one of these historians whose work I found inspiring. It wasn't so much what he wrote about, but his, his attitude to writing history uh, and the um, commitment and excitement he brought to it. and. This was a whole life in this book. Um, Eunice was 89 when she died. And what she means goes beyond one individual life. It's, you know, you're left with the question, who was Eunice? What did she become? Do we always, do we all have the ability to be moulded by circumstances Mm. in the way that Eunice was. It's a kind of study in identity theft, if you like, Mm. Um, but also a very creative replacement in in Eunice's case, and also a very lively picture of, of a colonial society at a certain point. And I think that that whole topic and reading around it, reading his other books, gave me a great deal of pleasure. Mm
0: -hmm. Hilary, can I ask you now about the diaries? I want to focus on one particular piece, Meeting the Devil. So there's a couple of diary pieces here. One of them is Meeting My Stepfather. Yes. This other one, Meeting the Devil, was written in 2010 when you were very seriously unwell. I know and I'm sure most listeners are aware that you've battled ill health for over 40 years and that you live with chronic pain and discomfort. But this particular piece is a very personal, very acute account of that particular episode, which I understand was a very serious one, a very serious ill health. And you write a very frightening, a very vivid account of what it's like to be ill in that way. You write about the hallucinations that you suffered. I was wondering to start with, did you always intend to publish that
1: piece? In, in 2010, I had a surgery which was intended to be over in two hours and actually took eight. And it was a rather ghastly experience for all concerned because Not only was it unexpectedly complicated in itself, but there were a few disasters afterwards. And the next few days didn't go as intended at all. And I did think at one point that I was going to die, but all the time, even when I was full of morphine, even when I was hallucinating, I was writing. Mm. One thing I would not let go of was my notebook and pen Mm. because I had the feeling that as long as I'm writing, I'm alive. Mm. And you know how it is when you're in a hospital and you're hooked up to machines. There's a screen with green dots and lines running up and down, printouts telling you, how you're doing physiologically. And I began to associate these with the lines I was making on the page. And that's right.
0: Yes, Going up and that's down. It. Going the up and down.
1: The goes up and down. And the green dots go up mm-hmm. and down. And the machines bleep. And I don't bleep, but from time to time little moans come out of me that seemed to be happening in some distant country. And that first night after the surgery, when I was semi-awake, I wrote so many novels. I couldn't write that first no. night. Nobody gave me my notebook. Otherwise, I'm sure I'd have had a try. But I dreamt whole novels. And... I didn't worry about whether the storylines or the characters were a bit in shade. In a way, they never have in real life. They just galloped away. And, and then I, I saw one of my characters, a person who'd been giving me considerable difficulty, a um, character in my short story, The Assassination of Mrs Thatcher, uh, of of Margaret Thatcher. And so one of my visitors to the bedside that night was her assassin. And I noticed in particular the, the awful bottle green sweater he was wearing and how it was unraveling. And I thought he looks so uncared for what he really needs his wife. And so the assassin um became a present person, who then had to stand in the queue, wait for me. And then days passed, and I was pretty poorly. But when I was hallucinating, it only ever seemed to be at one side of my head. So Mm. very strange things were going on, on the right. Mm. But with the left, I could think and process, so I could write down what was happening. Mm and I kept the narrative going then when after many weeks I came out of hospital I thought well there's my LRB diary I didn't part way through the hospitalization I I think I did know I'm doing this for a purpose Mm. and then it was a question of who will be interested in this well maybe Mary Kay will be interested and Yes, so so it came about, and I didn't have to do much work because the stuff I'd written at the time was unimprovable Mm -hmm. uh, in a way. It just had to be strung together and a narrative order found for it. But It was a very strangely productive time Mm -hmm. and very curious because I remember... Whilst I was in hospital, very soon after the surgery, I got the proofs of a biography of Catherine of Aragon and uh, somehow read it with great attention and made very good notes on it. And and I feel as if that was was keeping me alive, Uh, the fact that I could still think and I could still write. But I had to lie on my notebook. I was, I was really afraid that someone was going to come and take it away. Take it away. Or that the pen would roll out of my reach. That would have been a tragedy. So there are a couple of
0: lovely lines in, towards the end of that diary that, that relate to what you've just said. Uh, one of the things you say is, I'm fascinated by the line between writing and physical survival. And then you say, the black ink reassured me that I was alive and could act in the world. And finally, the one that I really liked was when you uh, recalled a story about Virginia Woolf and how, when she had been told by her doctors to stop writing, she had stopped writing. And you said to yourself, Well, what kind of a wuss was she? So I wanted you to talk a little bit about how and why it was so important to you to keep writing. What was that connection between writing and physical survival? You know, I, it was always just made me think, I write, therefore I am. If I'm not writing, then I am not.
1: Yes, that um, connection you make between blood and ink, they both have to be flowing. And from time to time, a little blood is spilled, but it's not necessarily fatal. And from time to time, a little ink is wasted. But that doesn't mean the end of your writing career. It doesn't mean you're no good. So we take in these temporary setbacks. I think that was the the theme for me. That was the lesson for me. I felt that whilst I was making such, whilst I was making some sense of my experience, through writing it down, it was in a sense under my control. And I also felt that I was the one who centered the narrative because in the course of a day, all sorts of people bat in and out of your hospital room and they each have a tiny little bit of the story, but you have the whole story. Mm. So I was intent on keeping that story straight. And as long as I felt I was doing that, then I had the power to survive. Let me ask you now about the paper. Well,
0: it started as a speech on royal bodies. So you say at the introduction of this collection that a literary journal must also be a political journal and that the London Review of Books is at ease with controversy and that it will allow a contributor to to be contrary and even unfashionable. I'd like to ask you and I'd like you to talk a little bit about the 2013 piece which is included in this collection called Royal Bodies from Anne Boleyn to Kate Middleton. That began its life, I know, as a lecture that you gave to the London Review of Books at the British Museum and it unleashed a major controversy which I imagine came as a big surprise to you. I'd like you to talk a little bit about that piece and what your purpose was in writing it and, and what the point was that you were making about the bodies of royal people generally, but royal women in particular.
1: The year before uh, Royal Bodies, the New York Review of Books had asked me to review a book about Marie Antoinette. and, and At the Hay Festival that summer, I was sharing a sofa on a TV show with, incidentally, Boris Johnson. And we were asked what book we would give as a present to a prominent person, a public person. So I said, well, I have a book called, uh, that I'd like to give to Kate Middleton, and it's called Queen of Fashion, What Marie Antoinette Wore to the Revolution. And I did it for a laugh, and the audience liked it. Mm. But Queen of Fashion was a marvellous book, because it wasn't about the clothes, it was about the body beneath, and it was about women's bodies. So it was a A case of rolling over uh, the work you've done on one piece to thinking about a slightly different topic. Mm. When I was approached to do the lecture at the the British Museum, I thought, yes, actually, this is what I want to talk about. I want to talk about the bodies beneath the clothes. Mm. And I suppose... Kate's story had evolved Mm. and I felt the same focus on her from the press as there had been in Diana, Mm. on Diana and as in a very different time and place there had been on a royal woman like Marie Antoinette. And... What overwhelmed me was the hostility of it, the misogyny.
0: Of the gaze.
1: Yeah, yeah. yes. That on the surface, it's, isn't she beautiful? Mm. Aren't her clothes lovely? But underneath, all the time, someone's putting the knife in. Jealousy, envy. Rage that you cannot share that person's experience, desire to bring them down. So I started thinking about royal bodies, not exclusively royal women, but going back to Henry VIII, Mm. to talk about the idea that the health of the king is the health of the nation. So a great deal of pressure is exerted on the royal body. In that way. And yet, that man or woman is a frail contingent being, just like us. They are not superhuman, though the myth around them would have them be so. So, that I suppose was the gist of of my lecture. Um, I talked about the Tudors, I talked about Marie Antoinette, about the modern royal family. I compared them to pandas. Um, I said, they're very rare, they cost a lot of money to keep, but aren't they fascinating?
0: Aren't they gorgeous to look at?
1: They're lovely to look at and we can't tear our gaze from them. Uh, And yet they live in this environment where everything has to be kept just right or they'll all die. And... So they are the focus of intense effort and attention. So I made these analogies. The lecture was well received. Um, Nothing happened. I didn't expect anything to happen. Mm. I knew it would be published in the London Review at some point. The piece came out, 10 days later, I looked out of the window and there's the Daily Mail and the Daily Express camped out on the seafront. And you see, I don't look at Twitter, but my husband's coming in with his phone in his hand every two minutes to say, you're all over Twitter and um, David Cameron, who was then Prime Minister, has condemned you. Mm. And the leader of the opposition, Ed Miliband, has condemned you. Mm. And I thought, oh, so what? Neither of them have read the piece. Do they not know better than to start talking as soon as someone pushes a microphone in their face? Start judging, start condemning. So I looked out of the window and I drew the blinds. And it it was comic, really, because when people always refer to the press pack as if they were... A pack of wolves and actually wolves know their target but they were confused about where I lived so any woman of approximately my age and uh, a certain degree of amplitude shall we say, they chase her down the street shouting, are you, oh, you <laughs> Hillary? <laughs> and um, my neighbours who it, it, it wasn't out of personal loyalty to me, though there may have been a degree of that. It was just that the kind of people we are here, yeah. we wouldn't be talking to those papers. So, going back to Diana, mm. in the days when she was a um, affair with James Hewitt, Hewitt's mother lived in Bodley salterton where I live, in East Devon. And reportedly Hewitt and Diana used to come here and walk on the beach. Wow. And no one ever picked up the phone and called the papers. So there's this little place in which you are safe. Mm-hmm. They would not dream of talking to what they call the gutter press. No. So um, no one told them where I lived. And after a few days, they went. They went away. However, there was a nasty side to it because it was the beginning of a sort of campaign against me. And thereafter, um, any time I put my head above the parapet, there was the risk of this. this sort of thing, starting up again. And at one point, one of the papers went off to find my mother, who was in her late 80s in a wheelchair. Um, And again, although it was a very different community, I'm pleased to say that the neighbours closed ranks and no one would say where she lived. But if her doorbell had actually rung, I would have murdered somebody, I think. It's so yeah. ironic,
0: isn't it? What you were writing about was that you were writing about what had happened to Diana. Yeah. You were writing about the force and the strength of that gaze on royal women, from Marie Antoinette, from Anne Boleyn, through to Diana, through to Kate. And what what you ended up—the gist of the paper was—you said about including yourself as well as as well as the um, as well as the press. I'm asking all of us to back off and not be brutes. The whole gist of your piece was back off, allow these people to live their lives, withdraw that gaze. And it it does just seem a very cruel irony that you became the victim of exactly the sort of attention that you were trying to deflect from Kate.
1: Yes. Uh, Of course, the papers couched it as if it was an attack on the royal family. Yes. It was actually an attack on the papers. It was. And the reason they wouldn't drop it is that I wouldn't say sorry. Mm. And you know how we live in a culture of apology. Mm. And everyone has to grovel all the time and say, I take it back and I didn't mean it. And I meant something else. Well, I would try to explain what I meant. Mm. Or rather, I would point to what I had said. Yes. But I would not take it back. And I don't take it back. And it was... It was unpleasant. I I think to a degree I was shielded by the fact that I don't take part in, in social media. And so, you know, I can say to people, all right, come on, have a go, I'm not going to see it.
0: <laughs> you must have been very surprised by that response, I imagine. I mean, given that what you were trying to do in effect was to of of all things, really, to protect her and to, to suggest that let's all work together to make her story one that has a happy ending as opposed to the ending that befell the previous three that you'd written about, Anne Boleyn, marie Antoinette, and Diana. So that the degree of vitriol that was directed at you, I imagine, must have come not only as a shock but as a surprise.
1: Yes, I mean, a person shouldn't be surprised. That's something that was written in a spirit of seriousness was so trivialized, and that the remarks were taken out of context. This is is what happens in those papers. Um, I couldn't say that what I had said was misrepresented, but I would say that it looked very different in context. Now, I'm not referential about the royal family. I will poke fun at them, I will question the need for their existence. But I am also always aware of the fact that we are not just dealing with an institution, but with Mm -hmm. human beings. And that was the thrust of my piece, Back Mm -hmm. Off. So, yes, there was a certain irony in it. And also, you know, you wondered, have you nothing better to write Mm -hmm. about? Why am I your target? Because I'm not, well, I have a certain profile, but Mm. it's it's as a writer. Mm. It's not as some kind of media star. Mm. So why are you doing this? Well, I think probably the reason was that it was basically an attack on, on the press and asking them to look hard at themselves and and reckon with themselves.
0: And that was willfully misrepresented. It was that the, the pieces that yeah. you, you were yeah. attacked about were taken right out of context and the 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 context that would have given meaning to what you were being criticized for wasn't included. And that's obviously I, I often really, the way these things happen.
1: You know, I I I realize the danger that Every time you open your mouth, you may be misrepresented. And it doesn't suit any of us to whine about being misunderstood. And that is not my complaint. Um, My complaint is that these papers have a way of making statements which appear to be accurate and are on the right side of legality and yet are profoundly untrue. Mm. And I feel that this this happened in, um, in the case of royal bodies, and you just have to be a little bit robust about it, because you can't afford to let yourself be intimidated. When you started writing for the London Review of
0: Books in 1987, you were, as you've said, right at the beginning of your career. I think you'd had your first two books published by then, and you were working hard to make a living. And as you've explained, that's one of the reasons why you you wrote the reviews. Why do you continue now to review and to write for the London Review of Books? What does it mean to
1: you? I've written some pieces during um, during the time I was working on the final book in the Cromwell trilogy. They tended to be. Two uh, to pieces, so I could bring some expertise and I could deepen my knowledge. So I was serving them, and I was also serving myself. I I would like to continue to have an association with the paper. I'm in a reset period now, and I'm not sure what. The what the shape of Act 3 will be, if you, you like to put it that way. I know I've reached a certain point where I'm doing to rethink. I will continue to, I hope, to work with the paper because I feel that I've got a lot of offcuts, if you like, or things I haven't explored that I might be able to write about for them. You know, there are always projects, well, certainly at this end of one's career, that aren't going to turn into a, a, a book, but ideas that haven't formed up yet, mm. nascent interests. And if anyone will can fish them out, then I think it's it, it's the LRB that would help me fish them out of the depths of the unconscious and solidify them into a piece of prose. I also, at the moment, I'm very much interested in going back to short fiction Mm -hmm. because all the time I was writing my last novel, I would have ideas for short stories. I would get so far. and, And then I wouldn't quite have the imaginative energy to push it through. Mm. So I want to go back to those pieces and see if there's anything there. Sometimes stories fail. Um, you know that's the thing with a review, an essay. You're always going to get there in the end. Uh, with um, a short story, for me, there is no assurance that I will get there at all. But it's always worth trying. So again, I whether it's short fiction or more memoir I have been working for the last several months on making the mirror and the light into Mm. the stage version working with Ben Miles Mm. who played Thomas Cromwell in the earlier productions and we are now nearing the end of our final draft Our, our rehearsal script is almost ready um what isn't ready is the big world out there because we are not in a position to start up anything at the moment but if it becomes possible to rehearse in spring then we will be ready
0: same Hilary, thank you so so much for joining me here today on books 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 it's been absolutely wonderful to talk to you this is it
1: thank you for giving me the opportunity thank you for listening
0: to books 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 If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go to my website, nicoleaberdy.com.au to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast. You can also find me, Nicole Aberdy, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all the usual places. Since it's a new podcast, it would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books, Books, Books a rating or review. Thank you. I look forward to talking books with you again soon.